What'd you watch? Uh, In the Mouth of Madness, a John Carpenter. <gasps> Have you a... never seen that before? I've never seen it, and it was awesome. Pete, I'm obsessed with that movie. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and I have no witty or quippy catchphrase. I'm just really excited to be talking about R2 Homeworks uh, and about Desert Power. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host. Uh, Martha Sullivan, and that line does not get less stupid the more that people say it to me. <laughs> it is in both of the homeworks that we are talking about, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. Now, if Oscar Isaac can't make that sound compelling, literally no one can. <laughs> uh, well, uh, as you are hopefully aware, today we are talking about uh, the, the, the theme, because we couldn't come up with a better one, is simply desert power. Um, and we are talking about Lawrence of Arabia and Dune, uh, specifically Denis Villeneuve's uh, 2021 Dune, which just recently came out in theaters. So this is your big old spoiler warning all over the place. We're going to be spoiling Dune. Seeing as the movie adheres closely to the book, uh, you know, you're probably aware of the beats or whatever, but if you're somehow unexposed to either Dune or the life and adventures of T.E. Lawrence, uh, as fictionalized by Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, go ahead, pause this podcast, take 10 hours to watch these two movies, uh, and then come back and listen. So, uh, <laughs> with that out of the way, and before we start talking about either of these, it's only fair to share with you what is stuck in our head. That's whatever piece of media we want to be talking about this week. Uh, so, Martha, what is stuck in your head? Uh, well, so I had some trouble thinking of what I wanted to bring to the table today because my media consumption over the last month has been extremely focused on just watching horror movies all the time. I did, I didn't quite make a movie every day, but I did watch 31 horror movies in the month of October. I, I mean, First off, give yourself a round of applause for that. That's astonishing and impressive. And second off, and with, that averages to a movie one, a day, so you're fine. Oh, yeah. And with one exception, they were all movies I'd never seen before. Mm. And What the, was your the repeat? One exception, yeah. uh, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, uh, fun. Because, because I was out with friends and I saw an opportunity <laughs> to get a horror movie in that day. <laughs> Hey, we all love Cabin in the Woods. You want to watch it right now? Yeah, pretty much. Um, no, because one of our group hadn't seen it before. Mm. So I was like, hey. But anyway, um, all of this is to say that really what's stuck in my head is the sci-fi book that I am reading for my book club this week called The Light Brigade uh, by Cameron Hurley. And this is a book about a war in the future. Uh, we are fighting against a force from Mars, and in order to get our soldiers from the Earth to Mars in an efficient manner, uh, the world's scientists have figured out a way to break soldiers down into light and beam them as light from Earth to Mars, where they then recorporealize and are ready for battle. 
super cool. Super, super cool. Yes. Uh, so that is the concept. And the plot is that uh, Dietz, our main character, uh, starts to realize that they are experiencing missions in a different way from everyone else around them. So they will come back and get debriefed for a mission that they were not on or do not remember going on. Um, they are getting beamed into missions that don't match their briefing. Um, and essentially what I think we're leading up to is that because light interacts with time differently, the soldiers are interacting with time differently when they are, um, distilled into beams of light so super interesting concept and it's my favorite kind of hard science fiction where it is just it is fiction enough that it doesn't make sense to me but it doesn't matter mm. i can just kind of accept that like i don't need to know how this works i just need to know that this is the conceit for the book there's and enough I can just kind of there's Let enough like happen. hand wavy mumbo jumbo like listen they get turned into beams of light it's cool move on yeah like we they get injected with all sorts of stuff to like change their cell i'm like no i don't need that much you can just you can just do your light thing and that's cool i'll catch up <laughs> <laughs> cool um yeah thematically this has it has no connection but it kind of reminds me in some ways of a, a sci-fi book called uh, a memory called empire uh, which if you haven't read and you're looking for a new book for your sci-fi book club, uh, I'd recommend. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm always, um, I'm always looking for new stuff. This is the, this is the book club that I run for the library. Mm. So my, my group, they're lovely people, but they are most, I am the youngest person in this group by a lot and everyone is white and everyone has read all of the like, classic sci-fi classic stuff and that's also the stuff that they like so like i keep getting asked like well can't we read something by heinlein it's like no because you've already read all of it <laughs> and i want to i want to introduce you to new stuff um so i'm always looking for kind of newer off the cuff stuff that they will enjoy that also they haven't read like 17 times before. Sure, sure. We'll talk off air about uh, a memory called Empire. Yeah. Bonus points if I can find stuff that's written by uh authors of color or women or queer people or, you know, mix and match of the above. Uh a memory called Empire is by a woman who was a uh like a Byzantine slash Eastern European historian and then slot like slid over into writing sci-fi uh and so her stuff is very like byzantine uh flavored yeah uh, which, we'll talk off here yeah which for me that. is just like oh pump it right into my veins <laughs> <laughs> hook you directly up to uh -huh. that IV. oh it's a sci-fi with a historian called like pseudo papadopoulos ah oh, yes give it to me please <laughs> um it's good to know our brands are strong <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> uh all right well what Hi. is stuck in my head is um i also struggled to figure out what i would be bringing to this um war on drugs a rock band has a new album out which i'm enjoying tremendously uh my hot take is that every single war on drugs song sounds exactly the same and i like that sound so sure more of it is good uh but what i really want to talk about is a game that i just got into um it yes. is for phone and tablet 
and apparently is also available on the Switch, but I've been playing it on the iPad, so I cannot tell you, Martha, if its Switch port is any good. Um, it is Fair called enough. Mini Metro. Uh, this game apparently came out in like 2014 or something, but I'm just discovering it now. Uh, the premise is that you're you're building subway maps uh, based on real world cities. So don't worry, Chicago is level three uh, after London and Paris. So you're given nodes and you have to draw uh, routes between the nodes. The routes are just colored lines um, and the nodes come in different shapes which represent different things. Uh, it's not formally stated, but in my little world, like, circles are residential areas, and triangles are, like, commercial, and then squares are industrial. Um, and at each of these little nodes, there are little symbols uh, representing people who want to go to different nodes. And so they get in the little subway cars, and they, like, the subway cars are just automatically following the routes that you're drawing. Um, and as as the game continues, more and more of these nodes pop up and you have to redraw the maps or add additional cars to the lines. Um, it's very simple. It's very soothing. It's like literally just shapes and color lines and like little Brian Eno-y kind of blink, blunk, blink, blink kind of sounds. Um, and yeah, it's it's a great way to like accidentally spend 30 minutes as you're like trying to get the St. Petersburg metro line to, to work properly. <laughs> um, and of course, you, you lose if a station gets overcrowded and, uh, uh, you know, then 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 you lose. And you're, it's based on how many people you're able to, to carry on your line before the overcrowding kills you. So I don't know what the name of it is, but Bill, my husband, has started playing. He picked up a game very cheap on Games for Gold on Xbox. That is a combination of you are driving a um, like a subway car, but it is also the game Snake. Hmm. So interesting. Every time you pick up more passengers, your subway gets longer. Oh, wild. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you have to drive it around. <clears throat> you have to drive it around the city or I guess subway or like segmented bus. Bus, bus makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah, your your piece of public transportation gets longer the more passengers you pick up and you have to continue <laughs> steering it around the city so that you don't like run into buildings. Yeah, yeah. That sounds wild. Anyway. Yes, anyway, I I am not familiar with this game that you have described to me. It's, um, it's it's meditative. You know, it's one of those games where you're like it's challenging but also like zen. So, uh Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll continue playing it for another week or two and then drop it. And that was a, a well spent four dollars. So, yeah, I think if I play anything for an hour, like if I if I pay four to six dollars for something and I get like one to two hours of enjoyment out of it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you're like, done. it has done its job. Exactly. Exactly. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about Desert Power uh, via Lawrence of Arabia and Dune. So stick around. It doesn't, it doesn't get better. Desert Power! <laughs> uh, all right, so stick around. And we are back. 
So, uh, I hope you have your still suit properly adjusted, Martha, because we're going to go real deep into the desert here uh, as we're talking about Lawrence of Arabia and Dune. Uh, and it's going to be just kind of like a freewheeling conversation. We have some key ideas we want to talk about. White savior narratives, um, like the Hollywoodification of, of T.E. Lawrence's life, uh, things like that. But also, we're just here to talk about these two fun movies and Dune writ large. Um, we're going to start the conversation first, though, with Lawrence of Arabia for um, uh, the very simple reason that it came out before even the book of Dune and was definitely a serious uh, influence on Frank Herbert in the cre creation of Dune. So, like, we're starting way back at the beginning. Um, Lawrence of Arabia is a 1962 British epic historical drama uh, based on the life of T.E. Lawrence and specifically based on his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which, you know, autobiography. Uh, directed by David Lean and starring Peter O'Toole as uh, T.E. Lawrence, Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal, uh, and also starring Jack Hawkins, Anthony Quinn, and Omar Sharif in, I think, his breakout role in at least American film. Um, T.E. Lawrence was a British officer during World War I who was assigned to uh, Prince Faisal and his Arab uh, Bedouin nomads who were fighting against the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, uh, whom the British was also uh, fighting. Uh, and it sort of details Lawrence's experiences with the tribes, uh, his sort of like how he becomes accepted by them and then how he is able to sort of it, the movie frames it as how he is able to import impart his british wisdom uh to these noble savages uh so that they can go forth and defeat the their mutual enemies uh and then there's also a lot of politicking involved because the british interests and the arab interests are not necessarily the same even though they're both allies um this was a very expensive movie at the time. $15 million was the budget, and it made $70 million on box office and was one of those old-school spectacle movies that you kind of just don't have anymore until uh, a little movie called Dune came out, which I think is doing very similar things of, of filling that role of old-school spectacle filmmaking. Uh, monumental filmmaking is, is how I've been thinking of Dune. Um... Martha, I know this is your first time watching Lawrence of Arabia. What are your takes? Well, so I think it is, it, it's really interesting to, to hear you say that because I learned this movie felt like this is the niche that sword and sandal epics keep trying to fill. Like nowadays like, or back then? No, nowadays. Mm, mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that we get these huge historical epic pieces anymore. Like our, our historical movies tend to either be war movies or like biopics or things that are um, like a, on a more intimate level. Like Ridley Scott's but, the only one doing like big sweeping historical movies like this anymore. And they're not doing well. Like, no. That one of the things that has always kind of confused me about that is that I I always feel like a big sword and sandal movie should do better than it does. Like they don't tend to be very successful, gladiator notwithstanding. Yeah, I'm a sucker um, for for uh, sword and sandal movies, and many of them are bad. Many of them <laughs> are very bad. Um, but that was the first thing that I kind of thought of watching this movie. 
Um, and I think that it's really interesting that the the movie that seems to be, I mean, obviously Dune and Lawrence of Arabia share a lot of DNA, but they're still very different movies just in terms of like what their stories are trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my my mind first went to like, oh, this is this movie is doing what Gladiator wanted to do. And. Yeah, it, it, it is weird to me that that sort of that the, that kind of big historical movie doesn't um, doesn't land the same way that Lawrence of Arabia did. I thought this movie was fascinating. I thought it was way too long. <laughs> but it's, um, but it's like the ambition of it is all over the film. Like every every part of this movie is swinging for the fences, and I appreciated that. Um, because that I don't think. You know, we certainly don't see something like that in a critically acclaimed film anymore, like something that just goes all out in every single aspect, like the score of this movie. Yes. And the the huge shots. Um well, and, and multiple multiple battle sequences like you hit the intermission of this movie and it's like oh that was a movie i my hot take is that i love part one of this and then as part two continues i'm i'm just like increasingly exhausted by it um because it is a three and a half almost four hour movie um but the the first the first part is so sweeping and it's sort of like it it pulls you in so magnetically peter o'toole really helping things by being like he is so magnetic but also weird uh like he's playing lawrence as a weirdo <laughs> um he is he's like a very delicate he's like, he's like almost fey yes yeah very waifish um i think you need the second half though because the first half is almost all like wins for lawrence yes and the second half is where like his his doubts start coming in, like the the Arabian Council that they put together doesn't work. He gets basically kicked out of Arabia. Right. I mean, you also need it because it, it com- like you need it also because like, it completes his story, not just for a storytelling purpose, but for like a historical epic. You need to tell, you know, his his whole arc. I but I think that there's a version of this that where they just ended with like look at all the cool stuff he did mm-hmm. end of movie right like, like ah Akaba we caught we captured it yeah like there's a version of this movie that doesn't bother with the like and then he started having deep like identity crises yeah yeah and and I think that that is a less interesting movie agree um you you were talking about like how just enormous sort of everything is here um what i always think like much like mad max fury road this is a case where it's like well how did you get those crazy shots well we got a hundred extras and we plopped them in the middle of the desert and then we started rolling (laughs) um and i i think of where the scene where um uh omar sharif's character is introduced uh uh that's uh sharif ali and he you know he kills um lawrence's guide uh because he was drinking from his well without permission and the introduction of this character is like just this huge wide shot of a tiny speck of a figure approaching on the horizon and every time they they had to reset that shot they had to go over that like literally two miles of desert uh to comb over the hoof prints to make it like flat again 
Um, and like, and that kind of filmmaking is, just, and also like they had, they placed rocks at various distances on like his, on Omar Shroof's route to basically be like, when you hit this rock, increase your pace a little bit because you're going to be two miles away when we start filming and uh, we can't give you any instructions. Um, <laughs> and, and like, and just that sort of filmmaking and that sort of like craft is the kind of thing that just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say doesn't exist anymore. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Dune later, but like, it's a very different. It's an unusual enough thing, and it always looks amazing. Oh yeah, I mean the scale of this can't really be argued with. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Let us discuss for a moment Alec Guinness. I was about to say, do we want to go into? brown's brown's face at at the moment uh and it sounds like the answer is yes i do because i think that i think it is important to establish the ground rules that this movie sets for us before we get into dune mm -hmm. because even though this movie came out in 1962 and we are you know 50 years away from that there are still there, there are this movie lays bedrock that we are still building movies on. Yeah. So it has it has shifted a little bit, but I think casting the casting of Alec Guinness as an Arabic character. <laughs> um, and then also casting other actors of color who are not Arabic, but putting them in Arabic roles. Mm -hmm. Anthony Quinn was a Mexican-American actor. Uh, yes. Um, uh, I just was reading the Wikipedia page. Um, the actor who plays Farage, Michael Ray, is half Brazilian. Hmm. Um, and this is very classic 1960s, like, I don't know, they're dark skinned. Cool. <laughs> like e Eli Wallach, he's a he's a swarthy looking Brooklyn Jew. Great. He's a Mexican <laughs> in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. <laughs> Yes. So this felt very much like the, oh, well, we we hired Alec Guinness because he's a very talented actor and I will never argue with that. Mm -hmm. But casting him to play a character who is not only a different race than he is, but is like the in this movie, he is the archetypical character of color for like he is the representative character. Of... I, I would say he and Omar Sharif's character, who and yeah. at least at least Omar Sharif is actually uh, Middle Eastern. Um, Correct. Uh, he's he's Egyptian. Um, and, and I think those two are like the two archetypes uh, or archetypical characters. Um, but there is a definite sense of we had to convey. Um, we had to convey an aesthetic. And so we picked apart from Alleganus, who we picked and then put under a tanning bed, um, like selecting actors that fit an aesthetic rather than examining what that aesthetic meant or was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I gotta um, say, I, it might have been like, you know, the, the TV I was watching it on and the, the high-def adaptation. It wasn't just Alleganus in a tanning bed. It was Alleganus in notably oh, brown, visible... Brown face makeup. 
yes. visible brown <laughs> face makeup where it's like that did not go up to your hairline in that scene. I was mm. gonna say if he if he took that if he took that robe off, you would see the lines where the, yeah. the makeup department. Well, even on screen, you can see the lines where the makeup department <laughs> in, a, in some of those scenes. <laughs> yeah, I was not paying that close attention, but um, I believe you. Yeah um yeah and it like it is a serious like i mean obviously we are much more aware of those sort of decisions now those sort of choices now um but even what maybe a decade ago like ridley scott speaking of gotten a lot of hot water for his uh atrocious film exodus colon gods and e- uh, gods of egypt or something gods of egypt gods of yeah. egypt um which i believe had no, no you're, like, you're, you're Mark... mixing up two movies. Oh, I'm thinking there of was... Gods and Kings, Exodus, colon, Gods no, of Exodus, Kings. There's Exodus, Gods and Kings, and then there is... Um, Gods of Egypt. Egypt. Yes. Yeah, with, uh, with Nicholas Custerwaldu, directed by... Um, uh... Oh my god, I, I'm totally blanking on his name. He did Dark City. Um... I don't know, man. Uh, he's uh proyas uh alexander proyas uh or alex proyas um who is actually an egyptian like egyptian american or or looks like australian greek he's sort of all over the place uh that was one of those movies where he was like if we'd cast middle eastern people i wouldn't have been able to make it yeah right i believe that but also it didn't make any money anyway that actually that may have made that may have made all of the money in China that I feel is one of those movies that mm. was basically designed in a lab to make money in China. Uh, um. Yeah. It, well, it barely made back its budget, uh, even, even with the international box office. Uh, but I, no, uh, of that 150, no right. Of that 150 million box office, I'm sure most of it was uh Chinese box office. Um, Cause no one saw it here. Uh, but uh, going back to Exodus, colon, Gods and Kings, like, that's a really Scott Sword and Sandal epic, and I think the only actor of color in it is, like, Mark Strong, who is not really, you know, he's like a British guy that everyone casts as a vaguely dark-looking British guy, and so therefore he's the bad guy. Um, and, like, that was in 2014, you know, and we're, we're still having that sort of issue then. I guess I guess you got Ben Kingsley uh, in it. <laughs> um, so like this, as as you were saying, like Lawrence of Arabia laid the groundwork, or at least cemented the the pre existing groundwork, and we're still sort of dealing with it. Yeah, let us not forget when Mickey Rooney played a Chinese man in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, that is one of the famous worst examples of this. Yes, because uh, not only is Chad- he in Yellowface, he is doing bad caricature there are a handful of actors of color in gods of egypt including chadwick boseman chadwick boseman is in gods of uh oh oh gods of egypt sorry wrong movie (laughs) Uh, i've now thoroughly confused myself about which of these two movies we're talking about um cool well yeah uh, it doesn't matter. Right. And, and and Gods of Egypt is a little more complicated because Alex Proyas, the director, was born in Alexandria. Um, so, like, he was born in Alexandria, Egypt, to ethnically Greek parents, but grew up in Australia. Uh, so, on the one hand, it's like, no, he's Egyptian. He's got cred. Like, he can cast whoever he wants. And on the other hand, he's sort of all over the place. 
Um, that's a conversation I want to go deeper into with Dune, uh, but we're not there yes. yet. So, um, do we want to get into how this is really playing up some white savior tropes, or do we want to save that until we can have it in conversation with Dune? No, I want to do it. I want to start it now because okay. I have diff. I have branching thoughts for when we get to Dune. Cool. So. One of the things that Hollywood has a problem with is this white savior narrative where the white straight man has to come in and help the people of color, you know, see the correct way of doing things and, you know, be the best at being one of them and, you know, lead them to glory. Dances with Wolves, Avatar, Last Samurai, dot, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So Lawrence of Arabia, A, takes T.E. Lawrence's memoir and plays up that aspect to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I should, I, sh- I guess, I should insert a disclaimer here that I have not read his memoir, but I have been reading a lot about it. Same. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it it is clear, I think, from his writing that he did not feel that he was taking on this role, but that the movie, in the first half, very much positions him in this role. One of the reasons that the second half of this movie is so interesting is that it then takes that away from him. Mm-hmm. Like through through the the ways that he starts to kind like he he starts to lose his grasp on it because at the end of the day, he is not a he is not Arabic. He is an Englishman. And it is so interesting to me that all of these pieces that he helps put into place by the end of the movie kind of don't work because he is approaching it from a very like white and British angle. And that's not who these people are. Mm -hmm. That at least was the sense that I got from it. I, I I don't know if it's that nuanced because I also think that this is a movie made in the very early sixties. So there is definitely some racism happening here. That like these these Arabian tribes are not civilized to the point that they can like sit in a council together and make decisions like that, I think, is definitely on at play. But I also think that part of it is that, you know, Lawrence and Britain try to impress a mode of governance and a mode of living on these people without considering that they are different people. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. And, uh, you know, the the work that comes up all the time when talking about this sort of thing vis-a-vis the Middle East is uh, Edward Said's book Orientalism, um, which, uh, you know, is, is a famous book, like his historical work uh, in from the late 70s that sort of observes and critiques the exact lens that Lawrence of Arabia and T.E. Lawrence himself would have been using to view the Arabs, which is like... It, it's your classic noble savage archetype like they are they're superstitious and proud and skilled warriors and willful and strong but also backwards and you know not not civilized um and their methods might work for the desert and it might make sense to to wear their garb and adopt their customs when you're with them but they're not truly civilized like us british people are um or us westerners in general uh and that that would have been like that would have been the unexamined, like, not even ideology, but just, like, unexamined default worldview of people making this film and of, of T.E. Lawrence himself in 
like, uh, and of all the British officers in uh, the Middle East at the time. Because um, as as all this is happening, you've got, like, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where literally the British and the French are divvying up the Middle East for their own, uh, you know, um, imperialistic aims with no regards whatsoever for the people living there. Um, so... Uh, so, so basically, we have a lot more. We have we have more and better intellectual tools now to sort of approach those cultural, like not clashes, but like the the intersection of two different cultures now. And you know, obviously, we approach it in a different way now than than would have been approached either by Lawrence or by the filmmakers. Um. But yeah, just in in terms of that white savior complex, I think it is interesting that the movie does, I think, take some steps at the end to try and dismantle it. Mm hmm. Well, we'd, we'd both read. Um, and again, this is the second like we're one tier removed because neither of us have read uh, Lawrence's book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Um but based on our readings, it seems like he is much more ambivalent about his role and much more sort of conflicted as to his own identity than the movie does. And I think we both agree that the movie does make steps, like, makes thrusts in those directions of showing ambivalence, showing that conflict. Um, but it's interesting, then, that this movie where we, like, it seems like it's it's beginning to tiptoe towards, like, subverting that trope of white savior, um, or at least examining it critically, but probably doesn't go far enough. Uh, in in his actual work, it does go further. I have a question of interpretation for you. Okay. Do you think his motorcycle accident is a suicide? Hmm. I don't. My my take on that scene has always been that it shows that he's a thrill seeker. Um, I don't get the vibe that he's doing that to, you know, like, as sort of like, if I die, cool. I think it's more just like, I, you know, it like became an adrenaline junkie, and this is how I'm I'm getting my kicks in the countryside of England. Uh, and, and whether you want to say that adrenaline junkies have a built-in, you know, manic suicidal impulse or not, uh, you know, I, I don't think that was necessarily like the the forefront of it. OK, it was just it was interesting The the movie films some things in an interesting way in those last sequences, hmm. um, particularly when he is like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm handing my resignation. I want to get out of Arabia. And then at the end, when Prince Faisal and the colonel question mark were both like, yeah, we're done with you. Uh, um, General Allenby. General Allenby, yeah, are both like, yeah, we're done with you. Peace out. Mm -hmm. You know, have a nice life. Um, and then the way that the they film the car, like passing the motorcycle, passing the motorcycle. I don't know the, and this might be Peter O'Toole's perform. I might be reading too much into, um, the kind of melancholy of his performance by the end of the movie. Um, but I did kind of wonder if the way that they bookend the movie with the motorcycle accident and then the motorcycle driving mm. past, if it was supposed to be maybe not like suicidal, but yeah, a little bit of like, 
I'm going to be reckless because I don't like by the end of the movie, he's basically like, I have accomplished everything. Right. I yeah. don't know what to do now. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that I, that I would give you. And I, I do, I do definitely take the idea of like, he sees the motorcycle. He's like, Oh, that's a fun new adventure. Um, Oh, that's probably it. That he's he sees the motorcycle and is like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like if if I'm fast. If, if I'm uh, leaving the desert and no longer you know, if I'm no longer a desert creature, uh, I can be uh, a greaser and a motorcycle boy. Uh, and then that fails. When did Lawrence die? Uh, Thirty-five. Okay. Uh, in 1935, not aged 35. So, like, a good, you know, 15 years after the events in this movie. Fair enough. That would have been one of those, like, I don't think it would have reflected real life, but right. in, like, just the context of the movie. Right, Although, totally. That would have been a wild thing for them to change about his life. <laughs> like, he didn't die of a motorcycle. Like, he died peacefully in bed. <laughs> All right. Well, should we switch over to talking about Dune or is there any other lingering uh, Lawrence Arabia only things you want to be talking about? Everything else I want to talk about, we need to get into Dune. Cool. Let's get into Dune. All right. Dune is a 2021 Dennis Villeneuve vehicle that was supposed to be released in the fall. Well, it's supposed to be released in 2020, I think. And it got kicked to 2021 and it got delayed. And Dennis Villeneuve was kind of a dick about people who were going to watch it at home because we don't feel safe going to the theater during a pandemic, to which I can to which I have to say, then you should have delayed it another year. He didn't have any control over the delay. I'm I'm going to give him a lot more leeway here, but but continue. Let's not rehash this. I think we fought about this before on air. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But yes, so Dune is the story of Paul Atreides, who is the only son of the Atreides family, who in the future, like 8,000 years from now, oh, it's has even just more. been appointed, <laughs> well, a many, many, many years, has just been appointed by the Emperor of the Galaxy to be the new stewards for the planet Arrakis, which is a desolate desert planet important only because it is the only location in the universe that you can mine and refine. Say it with us all together now. Spice. (laughs) The geriatric spice melange. Um, Which is the, the mechanism by which our galaxy turns. Um, The biggest thing is that it enables intergalactic space travel. And also it gives you a heck of a high. (laughs) Um, So the planet had been under the stewardship of the Harkonnen family. It is now being given to the Atreides family. The Harkonnens are upset about this. Um, The planet is also uh, natively occupied by the Fremen, a desert tribal people um, that the uh, have traditionally been subjugated by the galactic stewards. Uh, appointed to the planet and basically uh as soon as they land on the planet everything starts to go wrong with our friends the atreides uh or for the the atreides um the harkonnens stage a coup to try and get the to get the planet back paul and his mother jessica are driven out into the desert 
um, where they are picked up by the Fremen and spirited away to await movie number two. Because this is only up to the intermission of Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that. Uh, the idea that Lawrence of Arabia is four hours, but has an intermission, and this is two and a half hours, and is part one of two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... My experience with Dune, I read the books, all of them. Mm-hmm. All, all the Frank Herbert ones? All of them. Oh, you got into the Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson ones? I did. Uh, I was I was the perfect age for those prequels because they came out when I was like 19 or 20 and just reading literally everything. Yeah. So I could kind of suck them down and appreciate the story and not think too hard about the quality of the writing. Yeah, I read like two of those. And after that, I'm like, I like the Dune universe. I don't want to read these books. <laughs> One of the things that I realized, and I, I probably could have told you this before I watched this iteration of the movie. Mm -hmm. The version of Dune that is baked into my DNA is the 2002 sci-fi miniseries. I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say the, the Liet Keynes in in that version is kind of baked into my skull. Oh yeah, I I really liked this new version of Liet Keynes. I think she's awesome. Mm -hmm. I really missed Keynes on his knees shrieking about being a desert creature I, right before he's eaten by a worm. I think it's because <laughs> you had mentioned that scene like a few days before I watched it, but I missed that scene. Like, yeah, regardless of who it is, I was waiting for, for, uh, you know, for her to shout, I am a desert creature. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so what, so Dune, I, I would not say that Dune has been like a capital I important thing for me. Like, I, I, I don't know that I would call it for like the books i don't know that i would call them formative for mm -hmm. me i um but i i have read them and i have seen all iterations of it the lynch movie is not a movie that i would call good but it is a movie that i enjoy it's fascinating um also fun connection um, Jose Ferrar, who plays the emperor, the Padishah emperor in the uh, David Lynch version, um, has a small role as a Turkish bey in uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, oh, as you can guess by his name, he's Puerto Rican. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what is your what is your Dune experience? Um, I what also. Role, what role has this story served in your development yeah i read dune and and all the brian Her or frank herbert books i've i've very strong memories of reading some of the later ones up in uh on vacation at my um uh family's old cottage in michigan uh so i i was in high school i read dune and all the frank herbert books in dune um i don't know if i could say that it was formative because i read dune and i was like that was fun next book in the series let's keep going uh and then you know three years later i probably would not have thought too much about dune um 
But like the litany against fear is like because of the sci-fi miniseries and and then the follow-up sci-fi miniseries Children of Dune. Um, like I had I knew the litany of fear well enough. I thought that was a pretty cool thing. Um, and then I didn't think about Dune for ten years or so, and then I reread it about a decade ago, and it it just hit way way harder and better for me. Um, at the, by the, by the time I reread it, I was either in or had recently graduated college where I'd studied history and religion, specifically uh, Islam. Um, so Dune was a totally different animal than when I was like just a high school kid. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, I've read Dune, just just the book Dune, probably five times at this point. Uh, and I'm currently rereading uh, the, the rest of the Frank Herbert books um, just for the second time on all those. Uh, I'm currently in God Emperor of Dune, which is where it gets really wild. Um, but re like rereading it this most recently, it's like, yeah, this book is literally designed in a lab for me because it's a combination of like Buddhist spiritualism, 60s hippie nonsense, uh, Arab and Islam influences, medieval politics, and a sci-fi veneer. Um, and, uh, a nice white boy who gets to be the hero of it all. <laughs> well, and I think that that, I think if I had maybe come to them a little bit younger, because I... I watched the miniseries, 2002 I would have been... A fresh uh, sophomore in high school? 15. So yeah, I I started, like, my Dune phase happened between, like, 15 and 20. Mm-hmm. And I was old enough at that point... And, and I was probably, like, 14 to 18. I was old enough at that point that it bothered me that there weren't more women in Herbert's there weren't more there weren't more women with like POV kind of like it's just the positions. Lady Jessica and Chani and by the time you get to the second half of Dune and then Dune Messiah you have Alia who I think is my favorite character in the movie in the books Alia is fascinating because in she's in three different books and she's different in each of the three books <laughs> Um, yeah, you also and, get Ganima in Children of Doom, but she's a little flat of a character. Yeah, she I mean, she exists to be a foil to Leto, too. Yeah. Um, and this was one of the things that I that really carried me through the prequel books is that there are a lot more interesting women. Like the, the thing with like Dune is that for 1965, there are like there are a lot of women with a lot of power, like the Bene Gesserits as an organization is like, this is an entire order of like witches, you know, who secretly control so much of the galaxy. And like, sure, it's not great that we're calling them witches, but, um, but it's also, it's an entire order of women who have dedicated their lives to breeding the ultimate man. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of sucks. And like, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's such a, like they're bringing the ultimate man. Why? Because there's a part of their own psyche that they can't go to because it scares them too much. To. So they need a man <laughs> to look at it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like I was old enough to be picking up on those 
things. And it was like just enough for me to feel like, oh, this isn't really this wasn't really made for me. Yeah, if if I remember correctly, and I'm not here yet, as we get into the later books, there's like Amazon warriors who can also like mind control men through sex. Uh, like in, implant, implant, like <laughs> implant, like mental codes into men via sex. It's like, all right, Frank Herbert, like, calm, calm down. Don't, don't bring your kinks into this game, okay? <laughs> um, Bill thinks that a lot of my feelings about this movie are colored by my feelings of the source material. Hmm. Um. I did, I did not love this portrayal of the Baron Harkonnen. Mm. It's not my favorite. Mm. I I think that Stellan Skarsgård is doing an excellent job. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I really love about the Baron as a character is how he is grotesque and psychotic, but also like being very elegant and refined are important to him interesting i this baron this baron is just a monster i have always thought of the baron as more of a trump-like figure in the sense that like he would absolutely have a gold toilet because he thinks it's the epitome of class and refinery that's Uh, what i mean okay yeah like the appearances of refinement and elegance are important to him that that is why i missed fade rautha in this yeah i'm i'm I'm, I'm curious about like i it makes sense that they're like we're only green lighting one movie it has to be a complete movie even though it's obviously a two-part movie like you can't have fade rautha in it (laughs) this is not a complete movie i i don't think whether or not we got chapter two the the only reason that I feel as positively about this one as I do is because I know, you know we're getting there's... a second one. Sure. It's not that actually that would be one of my biggest criticisms is that I don't think this movie hangs together as a single story. I I think it does a I mean first off I don't disagree. I think it if you the the screenwriter are being told listen we're pretty sure we're going to get a second movie but we're not positive then not having fade rautha is absolutely the right choice cuz he's only relevant in the second half um Oh yeah no I I agree with that I just I don't agree with the analysis that this movie works as I, a single movie <laughs> Like I I can see the effort they made in trying to make it work as a single movie I can see the arcs they were trying to construct. I'm with you that I don't think it works without the second half. Um, and like knowing what the second half is, that all checks out. Uh, but like, I, I, I can see that effort went in to at least being able to tell, you know, the press like, no, don't worry. It's, it, it's a standalone movie. That's my I horrible also, Denny voice. My tinfoil hat view is that i don't think Vianuva agreed to i don't think he agrees to make this movie if he doesn't at least have like unofficial assurances that he gets to make two yeah i'm but that's I'm, my that is my that is me tinfoil hatting i don't yeah I, i'm sure that pre-pandemic it was like denny don't worry we're gonna like they'll be this will make gangbusters it'll be fine uh, and then once the pandemic hit, it was all of a sudden like, okay, what does success actually look like these days, though? Um, like, can we make back our budget? Uh, 
And and so that's where it sort of became more of a, a question. Sure. Um, I am very interested to talk about the white savior stuff because it is very true that Frank Herbert is on the record as saying that this that Dune was intended as a deconstruction of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I'm very curious to see how people react to chapter two of this movie is because I think this chapter is setting it like this again this is part one of lawrence of arabia this is where we have our white savior narrative like paul is greeted so paul is set up almost from the jump as being like this figure of prophecy both for the bene Gesserit and also for the fremen on dune the lisa um, partially which is partially engineered by the bene Gesserit, but also because like they have their own prophecies and um you know, he he kind of slots into that very, very well. Um, his Paul's story is not one of savior dumb. Like he. He, yeah. he he uses the Fremen to restore his own ducal rights and become the emperor of the known universe. Spoiler for movie two. Um, but he I mean, he, partially he does that to grant the fremen their freedom partially but it's it is absolutely a um you are useful tools and so they're and and our our objectives are in alignment you know he he is not benevolently granting anyone any freedom he is he is uh harnessing the desert power at his disposal and using that to you know both achieve his own ends and in the process achieve the Fremen's ends. I uh, I'm I I'm kind of feeling like maybe we should try at least try to limit just to this movie. Or like just to just to the dune like this movie and conjecture about what's going to be in part 2. Okay. Um but the end of even just the second half of Dune it's not really about well so in my take, like Frank Herbert is uh, like definitely is like, I don't I didn't want to write a straightforward white savior narrative. And it isn't. There's a lot of internal conflict with Paul because he keeps having these prescient visions of a of a jihad um, and a, a, a word that this movie studiously avoids. Um, and. He is trying to. He's trying to thread the needle of like preventing the jihad because he doesn't want the deaths of billions of people on his hands but also there's weird frank herbert stuff of like the genetic desires of the human race want to spread out across the galaxy through war um yes for for every for every like prescient for for every forward thinking way that herbert had of treating islam he makes up for it by <laughs> indulging in eugenics. <laughs> I, it's not even quite like the Bene Gesserit is eugenics. This isn't even eugenics. It's like weird, like racial in the sense of the human race, like drive for, you know, fitness or diversity or something like it's, it's almost like Darwinian, but like that's neither here nor there. Um, 
at the end of the day, like this, like the book, even with like him grappling with all of that does end up being a white, like being a bit of a savior hero narrative. The second book, Dune Messiah, is an absolute undermining and rejecting of that, um, which which makes it a very interesting book and also which would make it a, uh, I think, a toxic box office film. Um, well, and and Villeneuve has said that he wants to make, I, in an ideal world, he would like to make three movies that encompass Dune Messiah. Interesting. Yeah, he would like to get to the end of Paul's story. Interesting, because like Dune Messiah is like a complete undermining of Dune in a way, in in a very interesting and fascinating way. And um, I think that's the part that fascinates me so much is like, what are the expectations that you're setting up with this first movie that you would then by design have to destroy? Yeah. By the end. And also that feels incomplete for me because Dune you want, Messiah you want is such... I want the I want Children of Dune is the best one. I want okay? a sand I want a sandworm <laughs> god emperor. Okay, half human, half sandworm god emperor, controlling the universe for thousands of years. If you can, say, if you can film that, I know not it is. Even... But like, I mean, honestly, Children of Dune ends with like Leto in like a sand trout. Yeah, he covers himself with, in the yeah the gets... sand trout, which are the like embryonic parasite. Well, not parasites, but they're, like they're the, like the 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 another. They're, they're the caterpillar form don't, of. I was uh, gonna say, do not drop a huge. You cannot drop a huge Dune spoiler here. You just can't. We don't know what our audience's experience with these books is. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> anyway, uh, what we're saying is that Children of Dune and the God Emperor get so friggin' wild that, like, at that point, if they're still giving any money to make these movies, cool. Make this the next Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> but Dune, like segueing, segueing into Dune Messiah, like that is, I think, the true second half of Lawrence of Arabia, because that's when Paul starts to like doubt what he's been doing and wonder, like, oh no, am I actually going to destroy the universe by doing all these things that I thought I was doing to help save it? That also gets into like that. It's so. I mean, you're not wrong. It's also so internal, and it's so like. I'm tired of being a like a prescient being because nothing ever surprises me and like it's a boring existence. Boohoo. <laughs> oh no, you're a vampire and you're immortal, but you're super cool, but forever, oh life is hard. <laughs> um so I want to talk about that internalism a little bit because that was another piece of this movie like I think all of the actors in this movie are incredible. It still felt a little cold to me. Oh, interesting. Um, this movie cemented in my mind that Timothy Chalamet is like maybe the best actor of his generation. Um, really? He did so much work bringing a lot of that interiority out in like, cause Paul is someone who's supposed to be like, in control but also unsure of himself and i think that he did a good job at that um the scene I where he's he the gomjabar okay. scene was phenomenal um and no i i thought he he did a, a great job of bringing like he looked like a teenager who was at putting on a face of 
being in control, knowing what he was doing, because he's like the son of the Duke and and needs to protect that that you know outward sense, but internally is racked by by doubt and um, uh, uncertainty. Uh... I don't disagree with you. I think what I wanted the real. <laughs> I think the problem that I had is that his performance is great, but that character doesn't exist in a vacuum and kind of for the strength of the story can't. Hmm. And the thing that the movie doesn't give us a whole lot of is scenes of the Atreides being a family. It's all dyads. There's no triad. Right. Like it's, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot between Paul and his mother, which is very important. Um, we only get a little bit between Paul and his father, and we get hardly anything between the Duke and Jessica. And that was that was the one that I really missed because her love for the Duke, like, literally caused Paul to exist. Yeah, her love for the Duke is such a linchpin on which this whole story hinges that I, I really could have used more between um, Jessica and Leto. Plus, Rebecca Ferguson and Oscar Isaacs are so great individually <laughs> that... <laughs> you just want to see them kiss, because look at those two people. Yes! I mean, so I, I thought that all three of them did a really great job, but all three of their performances felt more distant than I wanted them to. They felt cold and a little too removed for me and i could have done with more intimacy that's that's fair i to me that all felt very um natural's the wrong word but like it all felt very right for like the situation they're in like they're all under such tremendous tre- tremendous pressure that they would be more removed like there's um there's a lot going on in the book that's not going on in the movie but like Leto at at various points has doubts about Jessica's, uh, you know, uh, whether she's a traitor or not. Um, I I think it's good that that's removed from the movie because also this doesn't need to be four hours long. Um, but like having that that sort of having the coldness makes sense because like they're all under so much tremendous pressure, and in so many of the scenes we're seeing them putting on faces for others. Um, one thing I really enjoyed was that. Uh, there were multiple sequences where we see Jessica um, alone, and she is very, like, she's wringing her hands, she's very obviously uh, emotionally affected, and then the very next scene, she's walking into a door, like, totally stone-faced. Uh, and I think that does such a good job of, like, showing who this character is. Like, she she has deep emotions within her, but, like, because of her Benny Gesserit training and everything else, like, when she's not in private... She is like the picture of control, uh, but then in private, she's able to not be that. Uh, now that we are talking about casting, mm-hmm. um, so we we touched on this already a little bit for Lawrence of Arabia, um, but I, I think it is important to any discussion about this movie when Frank Herbert wrote the Dune books, he very, very explicitly and intelligently threaded through a lot of Islamic 
language and culture and references. And, and Arabic like, to, to, to... Arabic, yeah. Well, both, like both, um, both Islamic and Arabic, because they are similar, but not the same. Right. So, and, and his references were, um, like I said, they were intentional. They were plentiful. Um, and one of the, I think, one of the criticisms of this movie is that Villeneuve cast diversely, but he did not cast Middle Eastern or North African actors to play these characters that are based on a text that is very explicitly rooted in Middle Eastern and North African tradition. I think the only person he cast from uh, a Middle Eastern North African background is uh, David Desmalchian, who ended up playing Peter DeVries, uh, the twisted mentat of the Harkonnens. And so he was pale and bald, like all the other Harkonnens. Yes. Yeah, and he's a, a half Iranian. Um, but So then the the question that kind of breeds is, like, yes, we are always looking to cast movie we are always looking to make the business of movies more diverse but i feel like we are now in a place where we can be purposeful about that diversity and as much as i really loved the performances that i saw on the screen i am disappointed that vianuve didn't utilize the opportunity to to cast not more accurately, but like he had an opportunity to cast actors that we don't usually see on the screen, and he didn't. And I think that that's disappointing. I've I've been reading a lot of the articles on this, and I've been thinking about it. And on the one hand, I I don't disagree. Um, but on the other hand, I almost appreciate that he didn't cast the Fremen as all uh, Middle Eastern or North African actors um obviously there's a wide gulf between casting only middle eastern actors and casting no middle eastern actors um oh good you said it so i didn't have to yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> um but like there the, a lot like herbert is like a syncretist right like so he he takes all these ideas from uh, from Arab culture and from Islam, but he also takes all these ideas from everywhere else. Like he's taking ideas from Buddhism. He's taking ideas from uh, Christianity. There's the orange Catholic Bible. There's the Zen, like the Fremen are descendants of Zen Sunni wanderers. The entire galaxy that he envisions is uh, like, it's the year 10,000, whatever, but it's actually set in like 20,000 CE um, because the dating system is based on the Butlerian Jihad. Nobody needs to know that. Um, and and so like this idea of all humanity is just an absolute like is melange the correct word here <laughs> like a, a blend like a potpourri um i think works like the harkonnens are are like bald pale larval humans um and and then like arrakis is Sort yeah, like like a a a hodgepodge of people. Like there is no strong, like they are Arabs or they are North African or whatever. Like it's it's a lot of people of color and a lot of different like tones of that. Um, you have the amazing Stephen McKenley Henderson as Thufur Hawat, uh, the Atreides Mentat. 
Um, you have Jason Momoa, uh, you know, who is uh, himself a person of color as like Duncan Idaho. Um, and so like, I, I take all the arguments that like, you could have cast somebody from the region that the Fremen are based off of as a, a prominent Fremen. Um, but I'm not as, I guess I'm not as hung up on it as, as I would be because as I am in Lawrence of Arabia, because it's all like, this is fictional. So I'm giving them a little more room to play, I guess. For sure. And I think that for the for the the Villeneuve criticism, it also goes part and partial. Um, one of the articles that we read uh, as kind of background reading for this, let me pull up the title and the author so that I am. It's a Washington Post article from by Harris Durrani called uh, The Novel Dune Had Deep Islamic Influences. This movie erases them. Mm hmm. Um, talking about how, you know, the, the book uses language like jihad and, um, yeah, jihad is the big one because jihad we still get, one. we still get like Muad'Dib and Shai Hulud and things which are, um, and, and uh, Mahdi is the, the big one. Yeah. Um, which are very explicitly. Uh, Muslim in origin, and then the movie in all iterations really have gone out of their way to avoid that language because it is very charged language. Um, but also to do that and to do that in tandem with the casting issue feels it it feels like intentionally kind of it feels like pruning some of the, some of the DNA of the books, which are like, they were very intentionally built around in order to make it more palatable for consumers, which is obviously what happened, but also does not really serve. So the, I Frank guess Herbert's original story. Well, I guess the question is like, Obviously, it's it's because the studio is worried that, like, listen, we can't be using the word jihad to describe Paul's vision of, of galactic war. Um, like, this is America in 2021. We this is not happening. Um, but I can I can see a. A creative argument for doing it, for, for pruning, as you say, which is like. This is set in space in the year on screen 10,000. Audience members think it's set in the year 10,000. We want to divorce it from the real life touchstones a little bit more that's, to make it a little nonsense. more like fantastic. No, no, that's nonsense. And you know it. Science fiction is a science fiction, like many literary genres, is inherently political. You cannot divorce it from the context in which it's being created, even if it's set in the future. That's nonsense. I'm, I'm, I'm saying like, sorry, by, by a creative uh, argument. I mean, like I, I can see like Villeneuve having like, having this thought process of like we don't like i'm i'm trying to tell one story i don't want to get bogged down in like 20 years of war on terror uh you know thought processes uh which did not exist when herbert was writing this so i'm gonna pull back a little bit more from making like so like i'm, I'm gonna take as much of like the the middle eastern coding as i 
as I should and can and want, but I'm not going to go all in on it because I don't want that instant audience association that exists now in 2021 that didn't exist in 1965. Um, I can see that too, and I think it's cowardly. Hmm. I don't think it honors the source material of the story that he's trying to tell. And at that point, I would say, well, then why this story at this time? If you're not going to, if you're not going to take on everything that it means, then why are you choosing this story? I mean, like, her, in, in my mind, Herbert was writing, like, an ecological, like, a, a, both a, a, like, a social political commentary and an ecological commentary. Um, oh, yeah. Because he absolutely was. Right, because he absolutely was. And also, like, Spice is oil, obviously. Um, and I think 2021, I'm, I was actually hoping they'd go a little bit harder on the ecological side of things, but, like, 2021 is a time to be writing a social, political, and ecological fable um, about a, you know, wars over a, a valuable, rare resource. Um, I can understand wanting to have that story and not also have audiences be thinking about you know uh like the, you know the last the last 20 years of american history but i i don't think you can bank on audiences not thinking about the last 20 years of american history yeah th this is one of those did things where not, like i'm did he not think this conversation was going to come up I, I, I don't know. Also, this is one of those things where I'm like, I'm too, I'm too deep in both like the source material and everything else around it for me to put myself in the shoes of like random audience goer, right? Like, especially like random audience goer who wants to go see Dune part one, right? Like, this is this is one of those things where I'm happy to say, like, I've got some thoughts and some theories and it could be wildly out of step with with generic, you know, public sentiment or or like what what people would think when they watch this movie. Um, well, and at the end of the day, we are speculating on motive and yes. everything. Yeah. I just I think it is. I don't think it's out of line to say that. Herbert wrote this Herbert wrote the story with very intentional references that everyone who has adapted them so far has pretty deliberately removed, which I personally think does a disservice to Herbert's original story. I, I would also say here, we don't know like Dune Dune Part One, we're looking literally at we meet Stilgar. Uh, we we meet Leah Keynes, Stilgar, and Stilgar's war band, and that's basic, and and the Shadow Mapes, uh, and that's basically it for the Fremen. Part two is going to be all Fremen all the time, and True. and that like you know that could easily be a case where like ah um uh Hara uh is you know may, maybe she would be cast as a uh you know Middle Eastern woman or whatever um. So it's it's the kind of thing where, like, I could see Villano not being worried about the casting in this movie because he's like, ah, but in the next movie, uh, we're we're spending so much of the time in the sieges that, like, I'll have plenty of, of Middle Eastern and North African actors. Like, sure, we'll get Rami Malek and why not? Because uh, I can just pull anyone I want because I'm Denny Villeneuve doing Dune Part 2. Who doesn't want to be in this movie? Um, well, and then we get into the question of can 
can the sins of part one be absolved by part two? And my feeling is that part one still has to exist. Like I can't judge part one based on a movie I haven't seen yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, again, I, I like, I am conflict. I, I, I see sort of both sides of the argument on, on casting, um, Middle Eastern or North African actors as Fremen in this. Uh, at the end of the day, it didn't bother me that there weren't any. Um, I was like, A, I will admit I was thinking uncritically on it. B, even thinking critically on it, it doesn't bother me that much. And C, like one possible argument for why it doesn't bother me is that there's there's a whole nother movie coming out where they're you know that could be rectified and we're looking at you know if i'm thinking of this like heuristically it's like yeah the fremen society writ large has many people in this one in these you know dozen fremen that we met none of them happen to be uh actors of that background but in the society writ large there are many actors of that background etc um i also think that we need to be careful as two white about people the fact that we are both white people yeah and are not have not been harmed by the systemic racism you know prevalent in um our country as a whole and in hollywood as an industry mm-hmm. so yeah you know saying saying that you didn't have a problem with it is perhaps maybe too dismissive of yeah i mean yes 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 but like i mean this this goes back to my thing where like i have a much larger problem with it in lawrence of arabia because that is an actual like those are actually supposed to be arabs and you are casting right. uh those are explicit, like, like the amazing yeah, actor ex- Jose Ferrara, a puerto rican <laughs> uh, yes right um and that i that i absolutely yeah, you know, that was well, and that was kind of why um, when we started this discussion, it was like this is the bedrock that Lawrence of Arabia laid for us. It is fifty years later, so we are talking about a different iteration of an issue that I think has the same foundations, but is is different in scope and um, impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And and again, like this, this also does hit me differently because it's not like it's not the David Lynch, like it's all white dudes as Fremen's like, OK, yeah. OK, <laughs> like Hurley from uh, uh, Twin Peaks. You're a really good actor. You don't you shouldn't be Stilgar. Well, <laughs> I guess like I mean, so I I loved Dune. I, I thought like. I, I've used the term monumental filmmaking to describe it because I think uh, Villeneuve does like between this and Blade Runner 2049 and even Arrival like I I think he's the master of of composing shots that that convey the size of just as I'm coining this phrase monumental like things vis-a-vis humans where you have tiny little humans in the in the corner of the screen and then enormous things elsewhere um, I, 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 I left think it's, this it's hilarious that so I would have I would have reversed the way that I would have said the thing that you just said would have been, um, you know, thinking about Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. Um, but like, so I, I left this movie being like just 
blown away by it like 8.5 maybe 9 out of 10 not not a perfect film but like blown away by it uh you seem like you had many more reservations than i did on it uh but we never actually started this conversation with the quick like what did you think oh i give this movie a solid b plus i mm-hmm. thought the aesthetics i thought the aesthetics were on point mm-hmm. um i thought the score was incredible i mean the visuals are staggering like yeah. as a as a piece of visual filmmaking, I've never seen anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the characterizations left something to be desired. I did not feel that the acting talent was utilized quite as strongly as it could have been. Um, and I thought that some of the, I thought that in trying to be very faithful to the kind of plot progression of the book, I felt like we sacrificed connective tissue in favor of making sure we hit plot beats. Sure. However, however, I will say that talking to people who have not read the book and who saw this movie, I may be, that may not be a universal complaint because this movie does also seem to work very, very well for people who haven't read the book. And I did not know like watching it myself, I was like, well, I know what's going on. But if you don't have a background with this story, do you also know what's going on? And that does not seem to be an issue for people. Yeah, I, I saw this with, among other people, my sister-in-law who had literally zero Dune experience, like not even David Lynch, not even the sci-fi. Um, and we, I was most curious for for her thoughts on it. And she was like, yeah, no, it was fun. There's some things I'm going to wiki uh, on the car ride home. But like beyond that, like followed everything that was going on, enjoyed it as a spectacle you know, all, all the rest of it. So it's it it doesn't seem based on sample size of one. Uh, it doesn't seem <laughs> like like not having any foreknowledge of Dune is a a barrier to entry. Good. Because, yeah, I feel like one of the concerns about a movie like this is always going to be accessibility for the audience. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um. Seems like a pretty yeah, good place I, I to wrap also, up. Unless yeah, oh, you're about last, to say something. No, my last thought is just I do always harbor just a little bit of resentment for that feeling of my feelings about this movie won't be resolved until I see the next movie. Mm. And that just always makes me. I was mad about it for Avengers and I'm kind of mad about it now. <laughs> that's that's fair. All right. Well, that is a pretty good place to end this uh, long conversation. Uh, Listen, we watched two very long movies. We had a lot of things to talk about. uh, So we're going long. Um, Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review and follow us, I guess, on uh, any of your various podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, what have you. Um, Please rate and review us. Give us some good feedback. uh, Give us some good stars. That's how we get famous. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I have not made even a single reference to Quisas Hadarak yet, so let me give that a try right now. Uh, if you give us five stars, we might become the Quisas Hadarak. Um, cool. That wasn't forced at all. Uh, you I was going to say, listeners, I do not condone what just happened. You can follow us on Twitter and let us know how bad that forced comment was uh, at DYDYH Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework? And you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, Martha, where can people find you? What are you plugging? 
Uh, you can find me in all the places at Magical Martha. Um, I haven't written anything in my newsletter for, I think, probably a year, but I'm about to rank all of the movies I watched over the month of October. So if you are interested in horror movies, that's apparently what it takes to get me to write a newsletter article. Was your, your last newsletter was your uh, 100 best horror moments from... 21st century article things yeah i think it was (laughs) you just need to rename that uh newsletter like martha's annual october spooktacular (laughs) yeah because i only put out i put out one issue a year (laughs) yeah just just own it lean into it lean into it (laughs) um what else do you have to plug Uh, I do another podcast that releases on the same feed on alternating weeks from this one called Love Ya, where Pete's wife Marin and I watch either an adult rom-com or a teen movie, and then we talk about it in depth. Our last movie was, Um, oh, our last movie was Afterlife of the Party, the Netflix original starring Victoria Justice. Ah, yes. And our next movie will be an Amazon Prime original called The First Time. So oh, right. check us out if you enjoy romantic comedies. Cool. You can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture and Dune. Uh, mostly politics and pop culture, let's be real. And our next episode, um, we are all deeply into Squid Game at this point in our cultural moments. We are going to be talking about gamifying the dystopia. Uh, We're going to be watching Squid Game, the 2021 Netflix uh, South Korean show. And we are going to be watching Running Man, uh, the 19... mm -hmm, Apparently it's called The Running Man. Yes, well... 87. 1987. Uh, And we're also going to be... Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm trying to get a clean cut here. Uh, And we are also going to be watching The Running Man, 1987 uh, sci-fi film starring the Arnold and uh, based on a Stephen King short story or possibly long story. Um, uh, Because we're going to be looking at the ways that for the past, I don't know, 30 years, we've loved the idea that rich folks are playing, paying poor folks to be involved in murder games. Yeah, I think that we have to look up when Shirley Jackson wrote The Lottery to mm, to really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. put a timestamp on that one. Oh, but that's okay. We'll talk about that because that that isn't uh, the DNA is similar, but it's different. We'll talk about that in our next episode. So that's a fun a little common spoiler. Ancestor. Common, yeah, ancestor. common ancestor. Yeah, in the same in the same way that evolutionary branch. In the same way that the most dangerous game is a common ancestor, but not not the same. Yeah. All right, well, you can look forward to more discussion like that on our next episode in two weeks. And until then, class dismissed.